Talk. We are your hosts, Amanda and Corinne, and today we are giving you an extra special episode. Uh, for one thing, normally Amanda and I go back and forth. This episode is Amanda's baby. It is. And it's going to be amazing. Also, we're drinking decaf. Please we don't are. be horrified. Look, we are women in our 30s <laughs> and have accepted our limits. Mm, not gracefully. Not gracefully, but, you know, we're learning. Every day is a new day. It's great. Because this is my fourth cup of coffee for the day. I don't want to admit to how many cups of coffee I've had today, Amanda. I don't want to admit. It was a lot. So we are drinking the Columbia Decaf from Synergoss Coffee here in Louisville. Um... It's very hot. <laughs> it's very hot. I've had this decaf before, and it's it's very lovely. I have not had a sip of this cup because I can still see the steam rising, and that is going to hurt me. Yeah, my I, I have one of those cute little enamel campfire mugs, which is great, except metal conducts heat. Yes, it does. So it's toasty, and even though it's great because it's Gideon the Ninth themed, ow, ow, I'm burning myself. Oh, she had good coffee. She had good coffee, though. Yep. Very light. Anyway, um, today I have pulled out yet another one of my many Oracle and Tarot decks for our daily draw. Look, we don't have a problem. You do. Yes, I do have a problem. You do, my- listeners. Oh, no. My husband would tell you that I have a problem. I'm I'm banned from buying new Tarot decks for a while. It's a whole thing. Uh, anyway, I have here the Obsidian Oracle deck. Uh, the art is by Megan Bussere? Bussere? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The guide was written by Trish Sullivan. Uh, it's really I, it's really gorgeous. Um, it's got some little Ouroboros on the back. Um, oh, and they're gold-edged. Gold they're really beautiful. Um, and it's all plants and animals. It, they're really beautiful. The art is just so delicate. Uh, I love it. And I pulled Snail and Bloodroot reversed. And I do read this deck reversed. It's Like right. most of my decks I, I, decks, I do read reversed. I just have a couple that I don't. And um, the key point of this reversal is that you don't have to tolerate toxicity. This is a call to find what is hurting you, what is damaging your relationships, and kick that to the curb. Well, we are doing really well these past few episodes on cards that work with our episode topic. Uh, This week, we are discussing occult court cases. Um, As Corinne said, this is my baby. I have been working in the legal field for four years now. 
five years? I don't know how time works anymore. Time is a weird soup. 2020 made linear time not exist anymore. I don't know how old I am anymore. I'm either I'm either 32 or 33. And I don't know which number is correct. And I almost said 23, and I know that one's wrong because I've been old enough <laughs> to drink for a long time. But I reverse numbers because my brain doesn't, I don't numbers. You know. Uh, so, occult court cases. We can't talk about them without doing at least a little overview of the McMartin preschool trial, aka the start of the satanic panic in the United States. It's great and global, but I'm not doing global stuff today. You just get Amanda. Yay. I might pitch in a little bit at the end because I found the court case from a really long time ago. That's hysterical. Please do. Because we'll probably need a laugh. Good. Because I have some really depressing topics today. Thank you. Um, Trigger warnings abound for my segment. We're dealing with, uh, across these few cases, Sexual abuse, psychological grooming, child death. Oof. Um, so I will not be offended if people choose not to finish this episode. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you've already mentioned one of my triggers. So if I have to tap out, I will actually say like, hey, can we gloss over this? And I will gladly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... The McMartin preschool case starts in 1983 when one of the preschoolers' mothers, Judy Johnson, reported that her estranged husband and McMartin preschool teacher, Ray Bucky, had sodomized their son. Yike. She believed this was the case because her son was having painful bowel movements. Okay. It's unclear whether her son admitted to the abuse when she asked him or if he denied that his father was doing so at this point. Um, Though, little kids will just agree with adults. Yeah, it's it's hard to get usable testimony from small children. Yeah, if you seem serious or excited enough about what you're talking about, most kids will go, yeah! Of course, yeah. Or they'll just answer... Uh, like the same thing over and over again, like yes. my little cousin did when he used to ask uh, anything with how many was the answer was five. So, you know, how many fingers do you have? Five. How many toes do you have? Five. How many daddies do you have? Five. <laughs> what a progressive family. She's 21 now. <laughs> we'll never let her forgive this, forget this, and she won't forgive us. So, I mean, that's what family's for. So, In addition to the abuse charges, Judy told the police that the preschool staff had regular sexual encounters with animals. Yike. That staff member Peggy, quote, drilled a child under the arm. Jesus Christ. Because that's something that you can hide from a parent. Definitely. And that Ray, quote, flew in the air. Despite the ridiculousness of some of these charges, Ray Bucky was arrested, questioned, and ultimately released due to lack of evidence. Okay. Oddly enough, there was no evidence that Ray Bucky flew in the air. I mean, he's not a witch. I mean, I, okay, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm shutting up. <laughs> I'm shutting up. 
The police then sent out the following letter to about 200 parents at the school, and I am just going to read this letter, and I want you to imagine being a parent in 1983, receiving a letter from the police about your child's preschool. Okay. The letter is dated September 8th, 1983, and it reads, Dear Parent, This department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7, 1983, by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with the child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if your circumstances dictate same. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky, any member of the accused defendant's family, or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. And then in all caps, There is no evidence to indicate that the management of Virginia McMartin's preschool had any knowledge of this situation and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during this investigation. Also, no other employee in the school is under investigation for any criminal act. Amanda, I wish people could see my face right now. Because what the goddamned actual fuck? Yeah. Uh, And it's worth noting that Judy Johnson, Uh the accuser, was hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, that poor woman. Like, I mean. And she had this diagnosis before coming forward with these charges. Oh, like, okay. This is awful. This ruins so many people's lives. But at the same time, schizophrenia is so hard to treat that, that that's heartbreaking for her. Well, and in the 80s, Reagan had just completely demolished mental health care in this country. Yeah, that just, it's Um, it's sad for everyone. Yeah, she was found dead in her home in 1986 Mm. due to complications from chronic alcoholism, which she was using. To self-medicate. Yes. Oof. Um, And she was dead before the preliminary hearing in this case concluded. And evidence of her mental illness was withheld from the defense. What the fuck? Yeah. How no one in this case was tried for legal malpractice, I do not know. I do not understand. As, As we continue, 
There are so many people who I feel should be in prison for for their involvement in this case. Mm. And I know it seems like I'm covering a lot of just this case. This is a shallow dive. This could be an entire podcast series on its own. Oh, for sure. And unfortunately, understanding this is key to understanding a lot of cultural movements from the 80s onto today. Yes. So Children's Institute International, an L.A.-based abuse therapy clinic run by Key McFarlane, interviewed several hundred kids from the preschool. McFarlane was a fan of questioning tactics that were pretty leading. Mm-hmm. Um, she would ask the kids to play pretend and reenact yeah. events that she suggested. Great. By 1984, remember this started in 83. Mm-hmm. It was claimed that 360 children had been abused. Jesus Christ. Due to the nature of the interview tactics, only 41 of those children testified in front of the grand jury. Okay. Fewer than 12 testified at trial. Okay. Michael Maloney, a clinical psychologist, reviewed the videotapes of these interviews and called them, quote, improper, coercive, directive, problematic, and adult-directed in a way that forced the children to follow a rigid script. Woof. Okay. Yeah, and that's easy to do with itty-bitties. Yep. Transcripts of the interviews show that the adults running the interviews had more than double the speaking time of the children being interviewed. I, I don't think that's how that's supposed to work. I don't know a lot, but I don't think that's how that's supposed to work. I don't either. Um, I'm not an expert in child psychology, but I don't think that's how it works. Yeah. Now, these were interviews of preschool children. Mm -hmm. So some of the accusations were just flat out bizarre. Yes, I've spoken with preschoolers. Right? Children claim that they saw witches fly, that... They flew in hot air balloons. Hell yeah. That they were taken through a series of tunnels under the preschool. Okay. And uh, surprising no one except for, you know, QAnon followers, no tunnels were found under the preschool. I remember reading about that. Yeah. Uh, What is it with conspiracy theorists and tunnels? Like, I understand that satanic panic and satanic abuse allegations are just blood libel and anti-Semitism for a new generation. Mm. I get that. I get that most conspiracy theories. The tunnels are cool, Amanda. (sighs) I like tunnels. I feel safe. No. (laughs) Probably Um, something about me that we don't want to go into. To continue the bizarre accusations, uh, the children talked about orgies at car washes. Children being flushed down toilets that sent them to secret rooms where they were abused. Okay. And abuse at airports. And, like, I know, I know 9-11 hadn't happened yet, but I have trouble believing that any prosecutor would look at that claim and think, yes, this is a reasonable case where children are abused in public at airports and no one notices. I'm really fixated on getting flushed down the toilet because that was definitely a fear of mine as a child. So, like... That's a fear of most kids. It's why potty training, like, sorry to go on this tangent, but potty training for poop is really difficult because kids feel like their organs are falling out because it's the first time that poop's ever not been caught by a diaper. Yikes. So, Brains are weird. Yes. 
being flushed down a toilet is a common preschool fear. It is something that if you are bringing up these scary topics and you're being a super serious adult and you're interviewing them, they've never met you before. They are going to bring up some just obscene fears. Yeah. So two trials were conducted for the McMartin preschool case. The first lasted from July 13th, 1987 until January 18th, 1990. Okay. Jesus. The second lasted from May 7th, 1990 to July 27th, 1990. Okay. So that first trial opened on July 13th, 1987. Okay. During the trial, the prosecution presented seven medical witnesses. The defense attempted to rebut them with several witnesses, but the judge limited the defense to one in order to save time on this three-year trial. Yes, good job with time management, sir. (sighs) In their summation, the prosecution argued that they had seven experts on this issue, while the defense only had one. (laughs) You don't say. What? In 1989, Peggy Ann Bucky's appeal to have her teaching credentials reinstated after their suspension was granted. Uh, The judge eventually ruled that there was no credible evidence or corroboration to lead to the license being suspended, and that a review of the videotaped interviews with the McMartin children, quote, revealed a pronounced absence of any evidence implicating Peggy Ann in any wrongdoing, and raises additional doubts of credibility with respect to the children interviewed or with respect to the value of CII interviewing techniques themselves. Yike. No shit. The following day, the state credentialing board in Sacramento endorsed the ruling, restored Bucky's right to teach. Goodness. God, would you even want to teach after all that shit? I, you know, children caretakers can be some of the most passionate people. Oh, for sure. I'm just, A, how hard would it be to find a job after all of that shit? Your name's just been right through the mud. And B, like, are you gonna trust the parents anymore? No. Like, no, I'd be like, fuck that noise. I'm out. I'm picking a different job. I'm going to go be an accountant somewhere. Right? So in October 1987, Mm -hmm. jailhouse informant George Freeman was called as a witness and testified that Ray Bucky had confessed to him while sharing a cell. Uh, Freeman later attempted to flee the country and confessed to perjury in a series of other criminal cases in which he manufactured testimony in exchange for favorable treatment by the prosecution. Um, yes, he he basically admitted that he fabricated confessions of multiple other inmates. Oh, good. And in order to guarantee his testimony during the McMartin case, do you know how the prosecutor sweetened the deal? Mm, how, how, how? He was given immunity to any previous charge of perjury. Jesus Christ on a pogo stick. What is wrong with people? Yeah. No, this case... Is everything wrong with the justice? Okay, not everything wrong with the justice system, because there's a lot of white people involved in this. There's a lot of things that are wrong with the justice system. Yes. On January 18th, 1990, after three years of testimony and nine weeks of deliberation by the jury. Oh, God. Peggy McMartin Bucky was acquitted on all counts. Ray Bucky was cleared on 52 of 65 counts and freed on bail after more than five years in jail. Holy shit. Five years in jail as an accused child abuser. Yeah, no. 
Nine of 11 jurors at a press conference following the trial stated that they believed the children had been molested, but the evidence did not allow them to state who had committed the abuse. I'm just, I'm taking off my glasses because I can't right now. Yeah. And 11 out of the 13 jurors who remained by the end of the trial voted to acquit Bucky of the charges. The refusal of the remaining two to vote for a not guilty verdict resulted in a deadlock. Christ. And naturally, and we'll get to media coverage of this case a little bit later, but surprising no one, the media overwhelmingly focused on the two jurors who voted guilty. Of course it is. Rather than the... Nine. Eleven. I'm good at math. 11 who voted not guilty but you know gotta give both sides coverage when has that ever gone wrong oh jesus okay okay i would lie to you guys and tell you i'm not this political all the time but they've heard our other episodes yeah so ray bucky was retried later on six of the 13 counts which he was not acquitted of in the first trial the second trial opened on May 7th, 1990, and resulted in another hung jury on July 27th, Christ. 1990. The prosecution then just gave up trying to obtain a conviction, and the case was closed with all charges against Ray Bucky dismissed. Thank fuck. So he was in jail for five years without ever being convicted of committing any crime. Jesus Christ. I cannot imagine sitting in jail... Having been accused of abusing your own child, knowing you're innocent, and and well, languishing in jail. And what about his kid? Like, so the ex-wife had passed in, what, 87? 86. 86. So, yeah, preliminary hearings weren't even done when she passed. So this kid is now hopefully with family. I'm assuming with family. Um, I didn't go too in-depth on the kids yeah, just because that feels really skeedy. It does, yeah. But, like, still, Jesus. Yeah. So contemporary media coverage of the case aired on a pretty non-critical acceptance of the prosecution's claim. Okay, great. Um, And to show just how corrupt this coverage was... That was mostly led by the reporting from Wayne Satz, who was in a romantic relationship with Key Farlin from the Children's Institute. Oh, my fuck. And the editor at the Los Angeles Times, David Rosenzweig, who was engaged to the lead prosecutor. Because that's not a fucking conflict of interest at all. Yeah. The case lasted seven years total and cost $15 million making it the most expensive case in the history of the U.S. legal system. Christ. Now, I'm going to move on to a couple of other cases now, um, but the satanic panic around this particular preschool did not end there. Um, There were a group of parents who were just convinced that something had happened and went on... They just spent so much money trying to find evidence of these tunnels that just didn't exist. I remember reading about that when I was learning about this last year. It's it's that cognitive, cognitive dissonance thing where you have believed something so outlandish 
and you have believed it for so long and you have put so much of your energy into this that you can't admit you were wrong. It's conspiracy theories in a nutshell. Yeah. That's, oh, woof. All right. Okay. So now that we've covered the lighthearted case. Yay! (laughs) Do you want to be real sad? I don't, but yes. Okay. We're doing it for the content. So, this case is just awful. Great. (laughs) Like, I, I can't, I, I cannot say anything good about it. Great. Uh, We are going to talk about the... Lillilid murders. Okay. Which was a criminal case in Greene County, Tennessee. Okay. Where three members of the Lillilid family were murdered on April 6th, 1997. Okay. Vidar Lillilid, age 34, his wife Delphina Lillilid, age 28, their daughter Tabitha, age 6, and their son Peter, age So these kids are younger than I would have been at that time. Mm -hmm. Great. Were shot on a deserted rural road near Baileyton during a carjacking committed by a group of Kentucky youths. Vidar and Delfina were found dead at the scene. Tabitha died after being transported to the hospital. Peter, the two-year-old, did survive, but as a result of the shooting was left with several disabilities. Oh, Jesus. Um, Six... Young people from Kentucky, including two minors, Yike. were convicted of felony murder. And we'll talk about the perpetrators of this horrific, horrific crime. Okay. A little bit now. Um, this is where the occult okay. portion of this comes in. So, April 6th, 1997, mm-hmm. the six young people... The youngest of whom was 14. Oh, no. The oldest of whom was 20. That's still baby. Babies. 20 is still baby. From Pikeville, Kentucky. Their names were Jason Bryant. Okay. Natasha Kernett. Dean Mullins. Joseph Risner. Crystal Sturgill. And Karen Howell. Were traveling to New Orleans. Okay. Uh, shortly after leaving Pikeville, they realized that the car would not last the distance, so they discussed the possibility of stealing a car from a parking lot or dealership. You know, like you do. The group was armed with two guns, and eyewitnesses observed them at a rest stop picnic spot along I-81 outside of Baileyton in Tennessee in conversation with the Lillilid family who were returning from a religious convention. Oh, Jesus. Vidar Lillilid was carrying the two-year-old Peter, and approached Kernet and Howell to discuss his religious views. Oh, okay. Uh, Risner and Bryant then joined the conversation. At some point, according to testimony from all of the perpetrators involved, uh, Risner displayed one of the guns and said, I hate to do you this way, but we're going to have to take, a- take you with us for your van, and directed the family into the van. Yikes. Vidar pled with the group, or pleaded, um, offering his keys and wallet in exchange for permission to remain at the rest stop, but they refused. Yeah. They made Vidar drive the van while Risner, holding the gun on him, sat in the passenger seat. 
Risner, Bryant, Howell, and Crenette were in the van with the Little Lids, while Mullins and Sturgill followed in Risner's car. And according to testimony, this is so heartbreaking. Um, in an attempt to calm the children, Delphina began to sing. Oh, no. Bryant ordered her to stop. She didn't because she was trying to keep her kids calm. Oh, no. So he directed them uh, to the interstate and then to a secluded road, um, Payne Hollow Lane. Oh, that's an unfortunately apt name. P-A-Y-N-E, but still. Homophones. Um, The little lids were then lined up against a ditch along the road and shot. Jesus, okay. Checking the bodies, Bryant stated, they're still fucking alive. Oh, yikes. And shot them all again. Jesus. Um, The group left the family for dead, continued their journey towards New Orleans, um, abandoning Risner's car, but with its registration plates removed. Okay. They stopped at a Waffle House in Georgia. Like you do. Left the restaurant when a group of police officers arrived. Then decided, hey, we just murdered some people. Maybe we shouldn't go to New Orleans. Okay. So they decided to drive towards Mexico. Like you do. They got to the border and were denied admittance at first because they didn't have proper forms of identification. Because, again, they were as young as 14. Jesus. (sighs) But eventually they found a way in. And while in Mexico, Bryant was shot in the hand and leg. The group was stopped by Mexican police when they claimed they were lost. Uh, The officers conducted a search of the van. They found a knife and a photo album that belonged to the Lillilid family and immediately deported them back to the U.S. where border officers searched them and took them to a jail in Arizona. Okay. And what is just creepy (laughs) to me is all of them had kept at least one personal item that they found in the little lid's van. Jesus. Yikes. So the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. We're going to focus primarily on Natasha Cornette, who was 18 at the time of the incident, and she was the ringleader. Okay. She did not pull the trigger, but everyone admitted including herself, that she was the ringleader here. She was born in Betsy Lane, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, She was the product of an affair, grew up in extreme poverty. She was a polite and good student up until about sixth grade when her academic performance just went through the toilet. Mm. She left school before the end of her ninth grade. So she barely started high school. And her only employment history at the time of the murders was babysitting. Hmm. Immediately after dropping out of school uh, in, again, the ninth grade, she started using alcohol and illegal drugs. She, by the age of 14, was using heroin, ecstasy, and cocaine on a regular basis. And at the age of 14, she was arrested for forgery due due to the theft of a box of checks. Um, Hmm. she was sentenced to a year of probation because she was 14. Yeah. She was arrested a second time for assaulting her mother 
Yikes. And threatening to kill her with a knife. Okay. But her mother did dismiss the charges. Okay. And on her 17th birthday, she married Steve Cornett. Uh, but the marriage ended after 10 months. Okay. And it was post this murder that the murder, or post this murder, well, post this divorce that the murders happened. Got it. I was like, Ooh, I can talk. And the first marriage through murder and not divorce? New. Okay. So she claimed that the ending of that marriage, she felt caved in emotionally and was psychologically devastated. Okay. But by the time of her marriage, she was firmly entrenched in goth subculture. Okay. She wore all black. She listened to, quote, doom-ridden music. And... Exhibited an interest in the occult and witchcraft. Okay. She was, again, still abusing drugs and alcohol. She was practicing self-harm. Oh. And Not she... That, that excuses what she's doing, but she was clearly a very fucked up person. She was very messed up, and we could go a little more into her early life, but that just feels very prying. Yeah. I get she is a murderer, but her early childhood was no picnic um again cool motive still murder yeah um but a lot of younger people who were similarly inclined you know who who felt left out they felt on the edges Mm -hmm. were drawn to her and she apparently had such charisma that if they had not been found after this murder like who knows yeah what she could have run and done Every interview about her that I found sounds like, what is the word I'm looking for? It it sounds like the beginnings of a cult. She sounds very charismatic. She was incredibly charismatic and people were drawn to her for a sense of purpose. Mm. She claimed on trial that she called she called herself the daughter of satan okay she claimed involvement with devil worship going back to her early teens and she claimed that this murder was for satan okay a lot of people think that this was her defense attorney prepping an insanity defense okay. and coaching her on this mhm but she did Like, at her wedding, she wore an all-black dress. All of her bridesmaids were in chokers on leashes. She she fit the... Expected look. Yes. I mean, she sounds like every mall goth I ever saw in the early 2000s, but with more murder. A lot more murder. Um, She also attempted to murder (laughs) another inmate in 2001. Mm, Okay. She has been in prison. Okay. In Nashville. Okay. Since then. Yep. Still yep, yep, there. Yep. Um, she has since earned her GED. Okay. And, you know, it It doesn't sound like she's really reformed at all. Okay. At all. Okay. She still claims that Satan made her do it. Okay. And with something that horrific, I would almost... Almost believe it. Believe that. Now, for something really creepy, uh-huh. 
Here is an article from the Orlando Sentinel Mm -hmm. from July 27th, 1997. Okay. Parallels found in two Kentucky Colts. Great. So, news that teenage vampires... I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. ...from a Kentucky cult were charged with the slaying of a Eustace couple in Central Florida. And this murder was eerily similar to the Lillilid murders. Oh, wild. These kids, despite all being from Kentucky, did not know each other. Okay. Um, in this one, the youngest perpetrator was 16. Okay. The oldest was 19. Jesus, they're still babies. Okay. All babies. And they were picked up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on their way to Mardi Gras three days after the murder. The fuck? Yeah. And did they also claim Satan told them to do it? They did. Okay. Satan was busy that week, apparently. Yep. And apparently, uh, Natasha Kernet from the Lillilid murders mm-hmm. told her mother that she was going to New Orleans, quote, to go to a loud place where the noise would drown out the voices in my head. Hmm. The all teenagers involved also really wanted to meet Anne Rice. <laughs> I'm sorry. Which is the most... <laughs> Late 90s goth sentence. I'm sorry. It's not funny. It's not funny, but that's I'm going to Mardi Gras to meet Anne Rice. Mm. What? Okay. Um, And Baton Rouge police found a copy of Queen of the Damned in the vehicle that belonged to the Windorfs who were found bludgeoned to death in their home. Jesus. Quite possibly left there by the murderers. Okay. And it's just, I I don't have as much information on the Eustace case. Okay. Um, But it's just crazy to me that literally within weeks of each other, two groups of Kentucky teens, one in, one set in Tennessee, one set in Florida, on their way to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, like, horrifically murdered families. What the hell? And I I don't know <laughs> what to make of that. I know truth is always stranger than fiction. Oh, for sure. Okay, do we need a palate cleanser? We do need a bit of a palate cleanser. I have um, a palate cleanser because I found this. And this is this article I found on Wikipedia is the reason I said, Amanda, we need to do an episode on occult court cases. So I'm looking over at uh, Corinne's page. It's beautiful. Um, so this Booty. Yeah. This says so Booty versus Barnaby. This is a British court case from 1687. I love this. This is wild. So at, in 1687, this guy named uh, Captain Barnaby was on the island of Stromboli, which is apparently a real place and not just a sandwich. Interesting. Just learned that. Today I learned. So they're out shooting on this island, which had an active volcano. This is important. So they're all on this island in May of 
1687. And they see two men running. And Captain Barnaby is like, oh my gosh, that dude being chased, that's my neighbor in London. So uh, apparently the guy being doing the chasing was like dressed all in black. And they ran into the mouth of a volcano and there was supposed to be some great noise. And reportedly Captain Barnaby says, I do not doubt, but it is old booty running into hell. Uh, Name of my new mixtape. Right? Right? (laughs) So um, (laughs) he gets back to England in October of that year. And so he's talking to his wife and she's like, oh, I can tell you some news. Old booty is dead. (laughs) Long live new booty. (laughs) Love it. Here for it. And he said, oh, yeah, we knew. We saw him running into hell. So... Mrs. Barnaby tells some friends who were mutually acquainted with Mrs. Booty. I can't with this name. (laughs) I can't. So Mrs. Booty is real pissed off and is like, uh, so you, this is, you you can't do this. This is is libel or slander. Which one's the one that's spoken? Slander is spoken. Yes. So she's like, this is slander. I'm taking you to court. And they go to court. And the judge is like, okay, well, can you tell me about when your husband died? So she tells time and date. And it happens to correspond with when Captain Barnaby and all of his bros saw these two men run into the volcano. And uh, not only was it just Captain Barnaby who's saying this, there were 30 people. Holy shit. Who all corroborated the story. So uh, the, the quote from this is, Lord have mercy upon me and grant that I may never see what you have seen. One or two or three may be mistaken, but 30 can never be mistaken. So poor Mrs. Booty lost her lawsuit because no fewer than 30 people saw a figure that they identified as her husband being chased into a volcano. Poor Mrs. Booty. (laughs) I just... Her name is Mrs. Booty. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Apparently there are some discrepancies on what island they were on. Mm -hmm. But I'm just delighted by the fact that Stromboli is a real place. I really thought it was just a food. I did too. I, gosh, that has to be rough for poor Mrs. Booty. And yes, I am just using this as an excuse to say her name over and over again. Right, right. I mean, it probably wasn't the the same back then, but Mrs. Booty. (laughs) I just love that. Lord bless me, the foremost man is Mr. Booty, my next door neighbor in London. What? (laughs) What? Thank you, late 1700s, for giving us this particular court case. Oh, hey, look, the the page even does tell me that it is, in fact, slander, not libel. Thank hey. you. Thank you, Wikipedia. Yay. But yes, that that is my palate cleanser because I laughed really hard when I read that. That's amazing, and I think we all needed that. I can't promise I will never go over something that sad again. But I think for a while I'm gonna avoid it. Yeah, I'm I'm here for that. Let's happy, 
happy occult things. Happy spooky things. Yes? Yeah. I don't trust you. Casper, the friendly ghost. Nope. Nope. Y'all, I've made a mistake. (laughs) I've made a mistake. Okay. (laughs) So, on that note, I think that is where we will leave us today. Yes. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, sweet dreams. Sorry. Thank you for listening to Graveyard Coffee Talk. Our theme music is Pretty Little Dead Girls by Sean and McGuire. Copyright 2006 and used with permission. Our cover art is by Kyle Welsh. If you want to keep the chat going, please visit our website at graveyardcoffeetalk.com for transcripts, episode notes, and more. Follow us on Instagram at Graveyard Coffee Talk Pod or on Twitter at Talk Graveyard. Boyfriend's